I, I re-categorized the risks that we had into ESG and other, environmental, social, governance and other. And when I, I looked at our risks from that lens, um, like three quarters to 80% of our risks fall in ESG. The Energy and Transition podcast is the first of its kind, exploring the critical role of oil and gas in energy transition. Energy transition is not transition away from hydrocarbons. It's a collaborative effort towards a lower carbon future. And these are the stories of the companies and people that are actively reducing emissions and actually getting us there. Leaders from all sectors will discuss industry trends and topics like emerging technologies, global energy demand, access to capital markets, ESG, and workforce innovation. This podcast is sponsored by Lockton Companies and Galtway Marketing. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to the Energy and Transition Podcast. I'm Leslie Beyer. We're recording today in the Fletcher Azul Tequila Studio in Houston. And so pleased to welcome our guest, Lise Rodionov is here today. She's the Global Director of Sustainability at Schlumberger, where she has spent her entire professional career. You are a long time Schlumberger long person. Time, yeah. I feel like so many people will say, well, I worked at Schlumberger here and there. You know, everyone touches it. But to have been there, that's that's extraordinary, Lise. Welcome. Thank you. Prior to this role, you were president of North America Land. You also previously served as HR director, production, um, and held multiple senior leadership roles as vice president personnel, global account director, and general manager in Alaska. So throughout your 25-year career there at Schlumberger, um, you've relocated eight times, Houston, Alaska, Scotland, Venezuela, Trinidad, and roles in line management, sales, human resources, finance, and IT. I mean, you've touched. You, you, need the, a, you need a drink after that. I know. I feel like, I mean, you've touched the entire business. Um, that's, that is an amazing run Thank there. You. And how cool that you could touch all those, those parts of it. And I know Schlumberger is famous for that, for really. It does. I think it, uh, it positions you to be able to manage things with a, a view of how it impacts multiple parts of the organization. Absolutely. I'm sure it contributes to your, your ability to view the business holistically. I know you're also a very proud Rice alum. Um, you went there for your undergraduate and graduate school. You got a BA in management and an MBA. Um, and you're married with your two teenage kids. Well, they're they're older now, 20 oh, and 22. Oh, wow. Yes. We, we aren't possibly enough to have old enough to have kids that age. I just got a driver for the first time in my house. My 15-year-old got his permit. That's stressful. Good luck oh, with that. Oh, my heavens. Um but I appreciate you being here and I look forward to this discussion that we're going to have. You know, Schlumberger is such a leader in this space and everything that we do in the Energy and Transition podcast is really talking about how energy services is in this unique position right now with this transition, the energy transition, how we look at that um, and how we play a role, sure. you know, across across energies. So, um the sustainability context. So in your role, in your position is all about sustainability. So how, how do y'all view that at Schlumberger? Um, where does that reside in a company? 
Um, and, and who sets the priorities for y'all and, and who participates okay. in that? Yeah, I think um, it's one of those where it depends is actually the answer, which I know is, is an answer you hate to get as a moderator. But um, I think that you have to, the way you look at sustainability actually is not specific to oil and gas because it's a topic that uh, is so broad, I think defining what sustainability is with, with more language and a view that is common across industries, across stakeholder groups, is the way to go. Uh, when you say sustainability, for some people, it's strictly climate. You know, For other people, it's going to be community engagement. For some, it's diversity. So I think um, defining sustainability and what that means for your company and what you're going to focus on is actually part of what you need to do. And then that defines kind of where it's where it resides in the organization. For us, um, we our focus, if you will, is climate action, creating opportunity, and then the idea of empowering local teams because we are a global company um, to focus on what they want on the ground and not be too prescriptive about that. So you know, the corporate effort is managed, um, and ambitions in that space are set by by me and my team. But even for the corporate initiatives, the execution resides in the business. Um, coming from the business, I feel quite passionate that um, you don't need or want a large team looking after sustainability. It could be one person, but a small group looking at it at the corporate level and then embedding, you know, if you decide to focus on environment, then maybe HSE owns it. If you decide to focus on diversity, maybe HR owns it. But leverage the organization that you already have to... Uh, to achieve whatever your agenda is would be my advice. <laughs> That's a really unique unique way of looking at it because I know a lot of companies haven't, you know, just in recent years they're starting to think about having someone that really looks after sustainability. Yeah. And in the beginning you started to see that okay, we're a standalone sustainability shop, yeah. but it really does probably to be effective have to touch you know, those, those separate lines of the business. I think so, to be real and to manage those like I said the those broad, um, the, the broad stakeholder base and the, you know, the different things that matter to the different stakeholder groups. It is important to have some ownership of corporate because I do think it has to be tied to the strategy and have executive ownership. So I'm, I'm not saying that you, you know, you completely delegate it, but you set direction at the corporate level and focus. But like I said, execution, I think really does have to, to be embedded. Right. And you can say that for a lot of parts of sustainability, like you said, not even just the environmental piece, like execution on diversity yep. has to be executed there as well. And right. we see that so much. Um, you've described, I've heard you in the past and you speak on this really often, this type of implementation is operationalizing <laughs> sustainability. That's just a cool catchphrase you know, to really be able to think about it. So how, how do you should talk I, about should that? Should I patent that one? I think you should. I think you need to call the patent trader Mark off. Um, so the way that um, that we, we do it in Schlumberger, and I like it because it goes back to kind of that common language, is we use the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. I hadn't heard of UN SDGs when I came into this role. So if you haven't, that's okay. But um, what they are is kind of a roadmap for countries on if they think about how they're going to uh, advance envi an environmental agenda, a social agenda, and an economic agenda, how do they navigate that? And so it's a, it's a way for countries to do that, and it's kind of this common language. Like 200 countries have adopted it and have plans for what they're going to accomplish. 
uh, by 2030, a lot of our customers, um, I looked at our customer base and 75% um, of our top 20 customers use the, the SDG language when they talk about their sustainability goals. So, so I like this as a, as a language to describe it. But then which sustainable development goal to focus on is going to vary country by country. Um, to use oil field language, the way I describe them is they're like a minimum standard of quality of life across 17 different lenses. Okay. And the example I like to use is SDG1, which is poverty. So um, SDG1, one of the metrics is that the average income is $1.25 a day. So if you're in a country where the average income is less than $1.25 a day, then SDG1 is a gap in your country. And so you, you know, and then the, there's guidance on how you address those gaps. So that way at the local level, you know, you focus on those gaps, which are the largest. Um, and as I said, they aren't going to be the same in, in various countries. So we use that lens and then each of our geographical units submits a budget and says, here's, here's, you know, here's what I'm going to focus on in this country. And here are the programs I have that can impact or contribute to that. Well, that's a great way to line it out for countries who, especially those who aren't as advanced as the U.S. that are, you know, looking and, and you know, how do we start? Well, there's a framework right there. There is. All you have to do, you have a baseline. Well, and, and for our industry as well, um, again, I hadn't heard of them when I came into this role, but um, IPICA, which I think used to be an acronym but isn't anymore, um, I-P-I-E-C-A, is um, an association which gives guidance and kind of best practice and methodology on sustainability for the industry. So if you're looking for, again, kind of a, a place to start and you've decided to focus on water or protecting, you know, the jungle or diversity or whatever, you can go to IPICA as a resource to, um, to get some guidance. And they even, they've just recently published a roadmap, which is the SDG roadmap specific for our industry, which, like I said, is how can we as an industry impact each of those um, SDGs? So, Well, an important part of all of that, as you've noted in the past, is how our companies need to work towards profitability. Yes. And we can't, and, and on these slim <laughs> margins, I mean, heavens, you know, energy services really we know hasn't even recovered those margins since 2014. Nope. And so there's so many companies that we work with at the council. And I know that, that you work with that are suppliers to you. Um, you know, how, how can we use this operational sus sustainability term and make the corporate goals and embed them in the front lines of the business so that they can get towards profitability? Yeah. I, so one of, I'm going to reference something that's, you know, it's not, Schlumberger's, it's not the industries, but it's the, called the triple bottom line when you talk about sustainability. So it's people, planet, and profit. But I think of sustainability as like the sweet spot between those three. So you have environmental priorities, you have social priorities, and you have financial priorities. And, you know, if you haven't embarked on the sustainability you know, journey, you're, you're probably very focused on the financial ones and return on capital and, and margins and, and um, investment, et cetera. But if you embed that lens of, okay, how am I going to advance an agenda, again, if it's environmental or climate or community related, at the same time as I'm delivering the financial goals, then you're, you're increasing the likelihood that you're going to come up on solutions that don't sacrifice one or the other. You're still going to make decisions sometimes that prioritize one or the other, but you know what the trade-offs are and you can manage risks around that. But I, there's very, you know, just to give a few tactical examples of what I mean and, and why embedding it 
is the way I think you can you can do this is so reducing our emission footprint will involve um, for our our uh, you know scope one and two so our direct emissions and, and electricity consumption we have uh, pickups that will have to convert to electric we have facilities that will convert to renewables um, I looked across our pickup fleet and we have plenty of one ton and three quarter ton as well as half ton pickups even if they're being used primarily for let's say moving crew around so if at the same time we lease most of our vehicles we lease when the lease rolls up and we say okay can we replace the diesel with a or, or gas with a with a, an electric can we downgrade engine size at the same time because you know towing capacity of a half ton today is is uh is actually pretty good and you're you know you're mainly using it for crew so then you're you manage to, from a cost-neutral perspective, hopefully, still advance the climate agenda, but you're also, you know, Saving advancing money. exactly um, on solar. We're typically seeing where we've implemented solar, let's say a 25 to 40, 45 percent savings on opex, but there's capex required to to do that. So we've found companies that are willing to pay to put the panels in for us in Egypt and in India, and then they get paid out of the the opex savings. So again, we're we, so we save a little bit less, but we don't have to put any cap, CapEx up to do it. So it's making sure, like I said, if you embed it in your business process, then you're asking the right questions during planning that you're thinking about the, you know, that environmental lens, that social lens, and the, the financial lens. And it increases the likelihood that you can find that sweet spot. Absolutely. And you're not looking at it in a bolt on extra thing I got to do later after I worry about the financials. Kind well, then of you know, like you said, you understand the trade-offs. If, if you only have a central sustainability team thinking about how to advance the climate agenda, as an example, they're not going to have the right visibility on the potential operational um, costs or, you know, process, et cetera, that that might impact. So you need both. Lanes. Absolutely. Um, so you know, we're just kind of recovering from really the pandemic situation. We're reducing headcounts. We've transitioned to remote work. How in that environment were y'all able to also achieve profitability and sustainability goals? Um, yes, I feel like we should knock on wood as you say that. Um, so in terms of managing the, the crisis, um, you know, I've been on um, in my career three other crisis management teams related to pandemics. Um, so it was, you know, we probably January or February, we stood up our crisis management teams globally and at the corporate level to manage, you know, the immediate concern um, related to it. But, um, you know, very quickly had to start transitioning and think, okay, how does this in the medium and long-term impact the, the business? We, we probably had maybe 10,000 people on a daily basis working remotely anyway mm -hmm. um, when we entered lockdown and you know within a few weeks we were okay now we need 55 60,000 people doing that and and we were able to i think that one of the reasons maybe that um it, i feel like it uh, we we managed the situation well as a company is is we we did have pandemic in our risk register previously um it it was uh in fact it was a medium likelihood but it was of a much lower severity than it turned out to be. But the fact that it's in there and you, you talk about it and you think about it, you know, it's why you practice CPR and you do fire drills is even if you, it, it turns out different than you expect, you are able to react and, and to, um, you know, to manage around it. 
And I think that's why, you know, they say they, the through, if you look at the ESG funds through the pandemic, through the last year, ESG funds almost across the board outperformed indices and other funds because, you know, companies that do think about not just, I'm going to lose this contract or I'm going to, you know, compliance related financial risks, but do think about those non-traditional risks and, and what are the things that, that could put me out of business from the social lens or from the, you know, the environmental lens. Even if you didn't get it right, if you're thinking about those non-traditional risks, it makes you more resilient, I think, as a as a company. And uh, certainly, you know, as an individual, we all learned a, a bit about uh, resilience through this past yeah, year we as did. well. Yeah, we did. We have all learned that. And and it's interesting that you, that you frame it that way because when I hear people talk about ESG, I know you know more about this than 99.9% of the people. But um you know, it's really discussed in terms of risk management. It really is looking at any potential risk. ESG yeah. isn't just about the environmental impact, you know, but that whole concept of managing risk, I would like to see that more in that conversation. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it is just this, like I said, on that triple bottom line, it's thinking about if I make this decision, if I'm thinking about an environmental decision, how does it impact my financial or potentially other st stakeholders financial? And how does it impact the community or my employees and vice versa? And it's, it's if you think about the trade-offs, you can manage them. I mean, we're good as, as an industry at managing risk. So it's, it's just broadening that view of how we look at risk. We, we did, one of the things I do as part of my role is I do manage our enterprise risk exercise uh, as well. And um, I, I re-categorized the risk that we had into ESG and other, environmental, social, governance, and other. And when I, I looked at our risks from that lens, um, like three quarters to 80% of our risks fall in ESG. So it really is, it, you, when you think about it this way, it, like I said, it starts to become just this is a way I think about my business um, and, and manage. And if you manage risk, you know, opportunity is the, the flip side of risk, right? So I think companies that manage risk well. Do well in the end. Do well in the end financially. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Knock on wood. Um, <laughs> that that's where, where we're headed right now, for sure. Um, and during the pandemic and throughout that, while you were managing that risk, um, y'all were able to prioritize some of your specific global stewardship in, yeah. in, in certain communities. Yeah. How'd you do that? Well, it, it goes back to that, that uh, empowering local teams that I talked about. So the fact that we have these budgets that the local, you know, geographical units manage is they would come back um, throughout uh, the, the pandemic and said, you know what, I had money or funds allocated to this, I'm going to reallocate to COVID response. And so lab-related um, locations manufactured hand sanitizer and manufacturing that, that had 3D printing capability manufactured masks and things. So, but it, it was, and we could do it quickly because like I said, we had this framework where they own what their local environmental and sustainability efforts look like. Right. And it was just a matter of saying I'm, I'm reallocating funds. Um. This episode of the Energy and Transition podcast is sponsored by Milestone Environmental Services, whose commitment to environmental stewardship and protecting customers, employees, regulators, and neighboring communities make it a leader in the transition to a cleaner energy future. 
Milestone provides innovative, dependable solutions for non-hazardous waste disposal, which helps their EMP partners improve efficiency and environmental performance in the production of oil and gas. Milestone builds strong customer relationships with a deliberate, proven approach that industry trusts to keep the environment safe. Known for its passion for customer service, Milestone strives to exceed expectations in all they do. Far ahead, always nearby, that's Milestone. The Energy Workforce and Technology Council is the global trade association for the energy services and technology sector and a proud sponsor of the Energy and Transition podcast. Representing more than 600 member companies and 600,000 jobs in the U.S., the Council is transforming energy by providing members with tools, information, and representation to boldly enable a low-carbon energy future, safely, profitably, and sustainably. Through education, best practices sharing, supporting innovation and advocacy, we are driving a smart energy transition and empowering the energy workforce of the future. And reallocating them for the benefit of our communities struggling in the pandemic. There was so much that our industry did, I feel like, you know, and we work hard to get that message out there, but sometimes it falls on deaf ears. Oh, for sure. And, and sometimes the workforce can get frustrated, you know, people within, you know, oil and gas feel a little attacked sometimes. And then all this great work that we do, um, especially that we were doing during the pandemic, I think was really admirable and it was. we should be proud of it. We should. And uh, no, I certainly all of our, you know, I mentioned those crisis management teams, the, each of them had a, um, a work stream that was around community. And so it was, and for the community I'm in here, what, what is the support that they need? Um, and that's an important part of our supply chain, you know, our community interactions with our customers when we've had ESG, um, events at the council and we have, you know, all the large operators and the EMP companies and they're talking about all the different areas of ESG where they can partner with their suppliers. They're like, hey, you know, partner up with us in this community stuff. Yes. It's huge. And we've been doing it for a long time, but being able to package it, you know, in our sustainability and ESG reporting will be better for all of us. Well, and like you said, it's it's going back to that language that ultimately we're both members of a community in terms of licensed to operate where we are. And if in that community, if um, let's say SDG six, which is water and clean water is an issue where, you know, in that country, well, it's an issue for us. It's an issue for our customers. So going in an organized way. And again, the way this, this uh, using that framework, when we're reviewing the projects that they're submitting, we'll say, well, can you partner with a customer on this? Is there a local supplier that, that you can partner with that makes sense? So encouraging partnership um, is uh, is definitely one of the tactics, I think, for, for attacking this. I agree 100%. And, and we are going to have to partner in a greater way with our customers, um, even to get to low carbon goals. You know, and we talk about that a lot, a lot of, of what our companies have been working on for years were low carbon technologies that just now people are like, oh, well, Look, you know, you you have a renewables arm. You 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 do things with solar. You have investments in other smaller companies. You know that are in wind or in batteries, and you know investing in that technology. Um, so your company has a long history of that, and many others in the sector. Um, but I feel like we can raise that flag, you know, a little more, and and really talk about what we've done to to get towards those goals in partnership with I, our I agree. customers, for sure. Um. So, you know, we're already kind of talking about the ESG piece. And I think if you had to, you know, really speak to 
a, a mid cap or a smaller company? Um, how do you even get started on that journey? <laughs> you know, certainly talking um, about the SDG language, that's, I think, a great place to start, you know, understanding how to identify baseline and where your gaps are. Looking at the IPCA roadmap is great. Yep. Like, what are the recommendations? Well, yeah, I think that that's how I would attack the, you know, the the how. Um, I think, uh, especially in a, a highly analytical workforce that we have in the industry, sometimes we forget to start at the the why or the the what before we go to the how. I I think it invites the question, you know, elephant in the room is is ESG or, or energy transition and are they the same thing? Um and and they aren't, you know, in my mind. Uh energy transition is a part of ESG and I I think where I would start is is um deciding what you're going to focus on. And that may include, and you know, from a climate lens, it may include energy transition. It may not, you know, for us it does, but it, it may not. And, you know, again, going back to things we know, maybe look at your stakeholder groups using that heat map of, um, you know, likelihood and severity of if they completely wanted to cross you off, what's the impact to your business investors or customers or, you know, license to operate type, you know, communities, governments, et cetera, and think about which stakeholder group is in the black or the red. And if you're going to start, like you, you are not going to make everyone happy. Even if you have a, a, you know, a comprehensive program, like we do at Schlumberger, there are stakeholder groups that are not going to think we're focused on the right stuff because sustainability is so, per so personal. So, so just, you know, be resigned to the fact that whatever I decide won't make everyone happy. And if you can put that aside, then pick a focus Really, like I said, if there's a stakeholder group that you are at risk of, you know, losing funding or losing license to operate, start there and say, this is what I'm going to do. And don't pretend that you're doing something else. Don't promise to do something else. It's okay to say, this is my niche and I'm going to do this really well. And, and as I progress here, then maybe I'll, I'll look to expand. And I think that transparency and, um, you know, non-defensive, non um, you know, like I said, don't, don't articulate ambitions in something that you don't plan to do. And that's okay. Um, because then the thing that you do well, like I said, we're really good at measuring and, and, um, driving progress in something, something that we're managing. And so those tools that I mentioned, you know, there are metrics. You say, what should I measure? There are resources to say, these are the kinds of things that, that indicate, you know, progress or advancing that agenda. So that would be my advice. Um, the other thing is, look at what you're already doing. Like, you know, I did a sustainability 101, a quite a bit of that when I came into this role. And some of the stuff, you know, the first business I ran at Schlumberger was in the Caribbean. And, you know, I met with the Minister of Energy on a regular basis about how many Trinidadians we had and where they were working in country and out of country. Well, that's sustainability. But like, at the time, if, if you said, are you, you know, is this sustainability, I wouldn't have said that. So, you know, part of, of it, I think, is, is once you decide to focus is going through an inventory of what you're, you've already done. Like you mentioned, as an industry, you know, we, we do plan on being places a long time. We have contributed to, to uh, access to energy and improving quality of life and repackaging that in, in a way that is using that language that is the sustainability vocabulary, I think, is also something I would do. It doesn't cost you much. Um, and it's, it, you know, you, you, we shouldn't be shy about saying, we, you know, I did this. 
Right. It ju- I really just capturing that language and being able to talk about it. And I'm sure a lot of that has to happen in those, you know, field levels, like in the business units yeah. and the business lines, like you talked about. Yeah. That's where you're going to get that information. For sure. Um, so we talked, we talked about the science-based targets kind of in the beginning and, and how y'all focus on those. So how, you know, the journey becoming the first company and upstream EMP to set those science-based targets. I remember that announcement. Can you, can you tell me? Because yeah. at that point, it was new to all of us. And we were like, oh, what does this mean that they're doing? <laughs> well, we've, we committed in 2019. We, we don't have the approved target yet. But we, um, so the, maybe just to walk through a little bit what, what we were thinking. Why, as you said, we were the first in the upstream space to, to do that. Um, I'd say there's a couple of reasons. Um, we, you know, we're a company that measurement is, and, you know, insight and, and uh, modeling and planning based on measurement. This is, is part of the DNA um, a little bit. So we wanted an approach that was based on data and on climate science um, and, and, and validated by a third party rather than us just saying, you know, this is what we should do. Um, so what can we impact? We want it to be informed by by climate science, and then, you know, as a you know a leading energy service company, we wanted to impact in with a, as broad of a lens as we could. So a lot of companies that set um, targets, net zero targets uh, by a certain date, they're looking at their scope one and two, so their direct emissions and their electricity consumption. Um, and we really wanted to include kind of the whole value chain that we can impact. So our supply chain, our logistics and, and third party equipment and customer emissions from the use of our technology. And, you know, we, we've been reporting emissions for the better part of, of two decades, but we were reporting scope one and two. And for us, that's about two million tons of CO2 equivalent a year. And we were reporting some scope three, but when we, through this process, we've dug into it and our scope three is about 50 million tons. So it's, it really opens your eyes to say, you know, if you really want to say, how can I make an impact? You have far less control, certainly over those things that I mentioned, but if you really want to make an impact in a broad way, um, we felt like that was the the direction to go. So we wanted a a target that encompassed scope three also. Absolutely. And there are, I mean, some of the operators have talked about embracing scope three. I know Oxy has. Yeah, and- a number, a number of them have now um, modified their their uh, net zero ambitions to include scope three, um, and some reduction in scope three as well. Right, it's definitely the way that that we see things going. Um, so in 2020, so almost just about a year ago. Um, your CEO um, introduced Schlumberger New Energy. So I know I, I see announcements, things that are happening. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, you know, carbon neutral energy technologies. Everybody's talking about what they're doing when really we know that we've been doing these things for a long time, like I said, but it's, you know, grabbing hold of that vocabulary, um, as you noted. Um, tell us, is that an energy fad? Is it here to stay? What is that? Yeah, I think we can cross off that it's a fad. Right. Um, it, you know, whatever model or forecast you you look at for energy mix, there's a range of of what, uh, let's say, renewables will be uh, as part of that energy mix by the middle of the decade, um, somewhere, you know, 35 to 55%. You, you see a wide range. But no one will argue that that mix 
has a lot of different things in it. You can argue about the percents, but there's a lot of different things in it. So um, there is no way to meet demand and address the, you know, the climate challenge of reducing emissions without all of those energy, um, you know, sources being in that mix. So again, as a, a leading energy service company, we're going to play in, a, in as uh, broad of a, a piece of that pie as we can. We've chosen parts of the of the new energy space to invest in that you know have large total addressable markets uh, as well as leverage what we feel are our strengths or our our capabilities in in ability to industrialize technology at scale with our global footprint as well as you know um, technical capability I would say in subsurface and drilling and digital so so we're, you know, we've announced, as you said, as you mentioned, there's been a number of announcements in, in, yeah, about a year, I guess we've had half a dozen businesses that we've announced. We, we're um, exploring really more of a partnership JV model to, to maintain this access to the multiple um, opportunities, looking at um, energy carriers like hydrogen and lithium, but also carbon capture, as you mentioned, and um, geo geothermal and geoenergy. So that's uh, more, more to come in that space. But, but certainly, I would say it, within the next decade, just to give it an ideal uh, of scale, I would say we consider the total addressable market of the businesses we've announced so, so far to be in the, in the neighborhood of maybe 50 to 75 billion um, annually. So not That's small. Im- no, that is impactful. And those commercial opportunities in those areas will increase you know, as we get a little further down the road, as you say, with our expertise of our workforce that has been doing all of these things. That's why I feel like there's so much optimism behind even a term that some people view as derogatory or negative in energy transition, because our workforce has been applying all of these skills and towards these new technologies. Sure. For a long time. Well, and I think, you know, when you think service in particular, thinking about council membership is, you know, our um, investment as as a collective is in people and technology. So those things, those two things are, are transferable across industries for sure. So um, certainly we see a long runway of opportunity. That is exactly what drove, you know, the rebranding from Legacy PISA and AESC to the Energy Workforce and Technology Council, because the workforce and the technology, we feel like those are the two things that, you know, we can just all our own and rely on that we're amazing at all day long. Um, our, our industry is full of really cool people. Absolutely. Well, speaking of really cool people <laughs> and places, you know, we talked in the beginning when I read your bio, everywhere you've lived, all these positions that you've been in that are so different and, you know, different parts, you know, how has that impacted how you look at leadership and, and, you know, your, your term there at Schlumberger has just been so varied. (laughs) Tell me about it. Yeah. I, um, I, I think maybe go back to the concept of resilience. I, one of the things certainly as, as you've moved around a lot is you, you get good. I feel like I'm good at adapting. Um, and in different roles, sometimes it was the role that same changed. Sometimes it was the geography. Sometimes it was the type of business that, that I was looking, you know, responsible for the personal situation, you know, it changed for my family. It changed for my, my husband and, you know, the communities we lived in were different. So 
adapting to change does build resilience. And um, I think that that's a, a critical component of leadership that your team and your, your workforce around you is looking for you to be, you know, not too stressed out by all of the, the craziness going on around because, you know, our, our world is filled with uh, uncertainty and the pace of change and in information and everything today. So I think managing complexity is a competency that my, my background, uh, I feel, has helped me to, uh, to manage. I will say that one thing that I, I think is consistent across them is that people are, are people uh, and you, you know, we, we've already talked about the cool people in, in the industry, but my first job uh, running a business was in the Caribbean. And, uh, I, you know, I asked at the time I got the role, I asked my boss, I said, you know, I, thanks for giving me the opportunity, uh, any advice. And he said, you know, Lise, take care of your customers, take care of your employees and everything else will take care of itself. And, you know, I have, pretty high EQ parents. My dad was a career HR person and my mom was a career educator. So they ha had instilled that sort of philosophy in me, but it was, it was good to hear from my boss is that in the end, if, if you, if you care about people um, and engage people, results usually follow. And I, you know, I, I care passionately about delivering results, but I, I care passionately about people too. So I think that's great guidance for all of us right now. <laughs> you know, we all have to be you know, adapting to change constantly, especially in the industry right now. And, and it just really your experience in doing that sets a great example for, for the way Thank that you. we will, our entire workforce will continue to Thank change. Thank you so much. Of course. Um, so what is, what is the coolest thing? I feel like you're touching <laughs> some really exciting parts of the business. The exciting, you know, opportunities. Is there anything that you're working on right now that you can share um, or your favorite kind of project right now? Um, I know you do a lot of external speaking and you I kind do. of talk about how leading other companies and what Schlumberger is doing. Um, what's your favorite part of it right now? It's a good question. You know, I, I think a lot of what I work on is actually pretty cool. Um, I, I think the piece I miss is traveling and engaging with, uh, with people outside of the virtual world on the topic. Um, honestly, and I know this is cheating, but the coolest thing that I'm doing right now is my kids are, like I said, 20 and 22 and about to finish, uh, college. So moving to that next stage in the context of, of the pandemic and all of that is actually, I'm, uh, I'm so proud of, of them as, as people and adults. I think they're pretty cool too. So that's really the coolest thing I'm working on right that's, now. It's great <laughs> to be able to show to other young women coming up in the industry that you can do all of that. You know, <laughs> you really can manage your career and raise great kids and, you know, take your foot off the gas on one and apply it on another, just, you know, for a minute and, and really be able to engage that way. And, and I respect that Thank quite you. a bit. Um, and I just, Lisa, I really appreciate you being here. It was a great conversation. And I am so thankful that we have your insight kind of on how to best approach these issues, how y'all have done it, um, and some guidance on moving forward that I think tells a great positive story, um, not just for Schlumberger, but for us as energy services. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Lizzie. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Um, we will see you next time from the Fletcher Azul Tequila Studio in Houston. And if you look on our website, we will have links to some of the things that 
that least mentioned on the IPCO roadmap and the SDG language. We will tag that in there. Um, thanks and see you next time. Thanks for joining us on another great episode of the Energy and Transition podcast. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. It's the best way to support the podcast and to grow our community. Also, if you want to reach out to us, please go to our website at energyandtransition.com and we'll catch you in the next episode.